But I, I want to invite everyone to open their Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. Today brings us to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Have you ever wished that you could start over? Maybe not like your whole life, but like do something over? Made a mistake that you wish you could have a fresh start with? Well, apparently there was this guy named Benny Wint who really, really wanted a fresh start. On a vacation uh, in South Carolina in 1989, Benny had pledged himself to be married to his girlfriend, a girl named Patricia Hollingsworth. Only Benny Wint didn't seem that that was such a good idea. I don't know why. He, this the same week, right? They got engaged. He, he decided to change his mind. He needed to call it off. So what Benny Wint did is he waded into the ocean, drowned, and was never seen again. Until 20 years later. Driving down the road in North Carolina, a cop pulled over a car whose uh, light over the license plate had gone out. So you can see the license plate. So the cop pulls him over. And the guy called himself William Sweet. And he was in the car with his wife and son. But when the policeman asked William Sweet for identification, William Sweet couldn't per- procure any identification. He didn't have a driver's license, nothing. So the policeman took him to the station for questioning. And it was in questioning that William Sweet confessed his real name. Benny Wint. When they asked him why he faked his death, he gave a number of reasons, but all of them amounted to that he just needed to escape. And, and by the way, I don't know if his new wife knew about his identity or what, but like, ladies, if you want to date someone, ask for identification, okay? Driver's license or something, social security card would be great. What I want to do right now, though, is make some comparisons and contrasts between a Christian and Benny Wentz. The first is that both have died. Now, I know that Benny Wint never truly died, but like we saw last week, the Christian is someone who has very much died. In a very real sense, someone who has died. The second is that both are alive with new identities. Whereas Benny Wint was the same person as before, he only changed his name, just a different name in a different place, the Christian's new identity completely alters them from the inside out. Even Revelation says that we will be given a new name that only we know. So Christians are alive with new identities. And lastly, both the Christian and Benny Wint have all of this for escape. Benny Wint's escape was superficial, deceitful, and about retreating from his problems. But for the Christian, their escape is not a retreat, but an introduction. Introduction to a whole new life. A whole new way of living. A a retreat from the old way of living into a new way of living. And a new family to do it with. So if you are a Christian today, you're a lot like Benny Wynn. You have died. You have a new identity. Because you're alive, actually. 
You have a new life for something new. And that's what this passage is about today. So I'd like to read this passage and see. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking party, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Have you ever been disappointed by a gift? Like, not, not what you were expecting? Uh, and, and when you're the youngest in the family, it's, it's easy to get what you want. So, like, as the youngest, I wasn't really disappointed by a lot of gifts. I got what I, I was spoiled. I, and, and I wasn't just the youngest in my family, but I was the youngest grandchild in my extended family, on my, on my dad's side. So I, I, I was used to getting some really good fit gifts. Until the first great-grandchild arrived. And she stole all my thunder. Uh, The first Christmas that she arrived, the family decided we had all gotten too old for gifts anymore. So instead, what they got us were these FBI kits. kits, FBI kits. Redneck FBI kits. Complete with plastic gun, badge, and a set of plastic redneck teeth. And they made us pose like we were having fun. This is not what I was expecting for Christmas. The first point that I want to make might seem a little like that, getting a gift you weren't expecting. Among the countless amazing gifts and benefits Christ has to offer, this one is a lot of Christians, they would just like to leave by the wayside. Part of our new identity in Christ is that we have been made alive to suffer. That's our first point. Peter writes, uh, he starts by writing, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. What Peter is referring to is that last paragraph, right? We saw it last week, that the whole movement was, was Christ came to suffer in order to gain victory. And now Peter tells them to arm themselves with that same way of thinking. You want glory? You want victory? Prepare to suffer. This is a far cry from what you'll hear from prosperity preachers. 
And say, if you want victory and you want glory, ask God for what you want, have enough faith. But, but the Bible says very much the opposite. You want glory, you want victory, prepare to suffer. In fact, this language that he's using is, is military language. When a special fighting unit like the Delta Force of the Army or, or the Navy SEALs, uh, when they're selected for a mission, the mission never takes off immediately. In fact, what they do is the team is selected and they are to prepare at a moment's notice to go off on this mission. And what will often happen is it will happen a dozen times. They'll get called to go on the mission, gear up, get on the helicopter, whatever, and the mission's called off because it's not time. And they do this over and over and over again until finally it's ready. And so at any point, these soldiers need to be ready to go. Paul says a believer's attitude must be like that. To be ready. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Why? Why? He says arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Why? For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. We are made alive to suffer in opposition to sin. All right? That's, that is one function of our suffering, is that our suffering is in opposition to sin. Now let me explain what this means. Peter does not mean we can achieve sinlessness. Right? There are some Christian circles that teach that we can become sinless in this life, and this is not true. Right? An easy place to go is 1 John, who says, whoever says they are without sin, deceives themselves, and the truth is not in them. Right? So this does not mean we can become sinless. However, what Peter means is that the resolve to suffer, right? If like a soldier you have resolved to suffer, this is evidence that the Christian has broken with the life of sin. Think about working with the FBI or CIA. You have to take an oath of secrecy, right? And, and you break with the life of, of carelessness, so to speak, so that you don't spill the, the information that you have. In fact, in fact, you join the FBI and CIA in certain ways, you have to go through torture training so you can even withstand torture. So, like that, the Christian whose mindset is one prepared to suffer is not likely to be a Christian whose mindset who's ready to sin. If your mindset is, is ready to suffer, you will not likely be ready to sin. This is exactly what Peter is saying in verse 2. Look at what he says. Alright, so for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from, from sin, he explains himself, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, for the will of God. In other words, let me put this as plainly as I can. If you are resolved to suffer, then you are resolved to not live according to human passions anymore. Listen, this is why I said earlier, Christians love to throw this particular part of the Christian life by the wayside. Because a lot of Christians don't want to leave their human passions behind. Having a mindset that you are prepared to suffer for the will of God leaves very little room for how you prefer to live. You follow me? You follow what Peter's saying? And if this is true, 
If our suffering is in opposition to sin, then we are also made alive to suffer in opposition from others. Peter continues, verse 3, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking party, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. So, get this, it's precisely because a Christian leaves a life of sin that they will indeed suffer. In their case, their Gentile neighbors are ostracizing them. Because their sin makes them weird and different. Or they're not sinning, I should say. Their breaking from sin makes them weird and different. Listen, when we're talking about suffering, it doesn't have to be state-sponsored persecution. In, in fact, the more that we've gone through this and the more I've studied it, the more I, I notice that they're not really going through like hardcore persecution, like imprisonments. Like, suffering can mean that we're just social outcasts. We tend to restrict suffering right to big things like imprisonment or, or persecution or death. But suffering happens when believers are mocked and cast aside and, and treated as the other. Uh, Tacitus, he's an ancient Roman historian and polit politician, he said this, that Christians have a, a hatred of the human race. Right, being maligned and mocked like that. This is why Peter addresses these Christians and us, by implication, repeatedly as what? Sojourners and exiles. Because that's what Christians are. America has been a, a welcoming place for Christian values for a long time, but that was never guaranteed to last. What's guaranteed is that if you want to be a faithful Christian, you're going to sojourn, and you're going to exile, and you're going to suffer. Be prepared to suffer. Peter concludes this passage right here, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now I don't have much time, alright, the smell of turkey and food is wafting in here, right, I'm hungry and I don't even want to be in here that long, that's, I'm just kidding, I don't. I don't want to make light of the Word of God, okay? I don't have much time to explain all the particulars of this passage, is what I'm trying to say. But again, this does not mean that Peter is saying there's a second chance after death. Right? We, we've covered the reasons why. It's not what he's saying. It's not what he means. <clears throat> what Peter is re reinforcing here is, is a final vindication for believers. Okay? That though believers may die physically, right? Uh, what he means by um, those who are dead, those judged in the way, in the flesh, the way people are, right? Though they may die physically, they will be made alive in the same way as Jesus, in the Spirit. So, what this means is we need not fear what unbelievers say to us, or say about us, or do to us. Because in the end, God will judge all things 
and we will be vindicated. This changes our approach to how culture is increasingly approaching Christianity. That, that God is the final judge. So we're made alive to suffer. We have a new identity to be prepared for suffering. But we're made alive for something else. We're made alive for a community. So verse 6, right? Peter's main gist is, is the final vindication, right? The final judgment. Right? That's his main gist. And Peter continues with this thought in verse 7. Look at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. In other words, the end of all things should make Christians clear-headed and sharp in their obedience. Now here's where we like to trip over this, is because oftentimes, the end times often make Christians a little loopy, don't they? Right? Doesn't mean trying to figure out which blood moon is the last blood moon. I've lived through enough blood moons to get tired of all of them, right? The moon is the moon and it's cool, right? Sorry to burst your bubble. Or which earthquake, right, is the final earthquake? Or which Tuesday the trumpet's going to sound? Right? That's not what it means to be sober-minded. For every person, people are sure is the Antichrist, there's another Antichrist right around the corner. I mean, back in the early days, it's the Emperor. Well, then it's the Pope. For some people today, it's still the Pope. Uh, and then after the Pope, it was Hitler. And then after Hitler, it's the President. How many Antichrists? We had like 20 you know, I, I, along this point, I had a doctor point something out to me. I, I, he's really right about this. He says, you know, people are really, really, really scared about the mark of the beast. Yeah, that's right, they are. People are scared about the mark of the beast. But he said, if you're in Christ, you don't have to worry about the mark of the beast. Because you're already marked by Christ. Right? You're not going to accidentally get the mark of the beast if you're a Christian. Right? Hey, you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to fear. And that's so those are examples of, of, of what Peter does not have in mind, okay? The end of all things should lead to a regular day-by-day dependence on God in prayer. When someone asked Martin Luther, what would you do today if today was the last day, the end time, the end day, or whatever? He said, I would go plant a tree and pay my taxes. What he meant, what we're called to do is live our day-to-day lives in increasing dependence on God and in obedience to Him. That's what it means to be sober-minded and and self-controlled. And guess what? God has appointed His time. He knows when the time is. Maybe it'll be a Tuesday, I don't know. But He's appointed a day for you, and that day is today. The day that God has appointed for you is today to do what He has called you to do. And it's at this point that Peter makes a really important shift in this passage. Right? So, so earlier in this last passage, his focus was on a believer's relationship 
with outsiders, right? That relationship being one of being an outcast, an outsider. And he moves to our relationship with one another. So those Gentiles he mentioned in this passage weren't just like, like the... I didn't like when we say, like, oh, those Gentiles out there are like these strangers to them. No, these Gentiles were, were neighbors. They were co-workers, friends, classmates. And some of them, even mothers, fathers, and brothers and sisters. And when you became a Christian and you died, you severed the tightest earthly bonds you had with anyone because God has now united united you to the church you have a new family a new society a new kingdom and and praise God if those old relationships are now part of the new follow me And, and Peter covers three features of What makes up this new community? So first, verse 8, what does he say? Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Alright, Peter does not mean, we do that a lot with Peter, this is not what he means. He does not mean that our love for one another, or our love for another believer, either, either atones for their sins, or atones for our sins. So in other words, I can't love another believer so much that I'm forgiven of my sins. Only Christ can atone for my sins. Only Christ can forgive my sins. Okay? However, when believers freely love one another, they freely forgive and overlook other sins and offenses. You cover them. All all is forgiven. Proverbs 10.12 is really helpful. It says, Hatred stirs up dissension, but love covers all wrong. So here's, here's what this means. How easily, or how readily, or how long you hold on to someone's sin is a direct indication of how much love is an actual feature of your life. So things like bitterness and resentment and holding grudges mean you're in violation of Scripture and of the love that's required of believers. I mean, I mean, how can you hold on to resentment to someone when Christ holds no resentment toward you and your worst offenses? Okay? Second feature is hospitality. Here it says, show hospitality without grumbling. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So hospitality is a lot deeper and a lot more meaningful than how we think about it today. Now, we like to say we have a hospitality team here. And praise God for our hospitality team because our hospitality team cooks us biscuits and gravy. Right? Hospitality all the way. I'm not saying he's a part of our hospitality team. I'll leave your imaginations to that. But anyway, um, all right, that is certainly an aspect of hospitality. But the way biblical writers understood it was having primarily a welcoming home. When you invite other believers into your life. And, and certainly this would have been true then if, if, if one of the believers is hosting the church. Like that's where they have their services, right? So like buildings like this didn't crop up until 
a couple centuries later than this, they're having church in each other's houses. So, so if you're having believers over frequently, right, that's why Peter warns against grumbling, right? I mean, me and Mal already do quite a bit of grumbling ourselves because of how much work it takes to keep our house tidy. And, and she's probably like in her mind like, you don't do anything to keep our house tidy. I clean up leaves and stuff like that, okay? I do the outside house tidy. But really, you know, what's funny is, you know, as much as we try to keep a tidy house and as much as when we do have someone over, we try to have our house tidy and neat, a, a dirty house actually really resembles our, house, our lives a lot more. Because we get mad at each other. We argue. We go to bed angry. We get impatient with Willa. We struggle to keep up with the demands of each day. Hospitality is about participating with each other and how messed up we all are and how much grace there is for each of us. It's hospitality. Church, let's lean into what God has called us to do and show exceptional welcoming hospitality to one another as redeemed sinners. second feature is hospitality. The last one that he mentions is, is one of edification. So Peter writes, as each has received a gift there in verse uh, 10, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's very grace. Okay, so first thing I want to mention here is a lot of people think that if they have a gift, it must feature prominently in the church. I have a gift, and I need to exercise it. You need to let me, Pastor. Exercising your gift doesn't mean you get to make much of it, but using it to make much of others and build them up. That's what it means to use your gift in the context of the body. Now, I know some people might say that's easy for you to say because you're the the pastor. If my gift is preaching, and I believe by God's grace it is, then mine features prominently every week. But I think a lot of preachers are going to be surprised by how many janitors and nursery watchers and kitchen cleaners are going to surpass them in glory. Because God surpasses the, or God blesses the surpassed. He blesses the obscure and he blesses the forgotten and the humble. So that's what it means to exercise your gift in service and in the greater good for the building up of the church to the exclusion of your own preferences. And Peter concludes, or he, he, he details what gifts he has in mind. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. The reason that Peter lists these two gifts is not because these are the only two gifts in the church, teaching and, and serving, These are the two categories that really encompass, right, all the gifts, right? So, I mean, all right, so um, uh, whoever speaks, right? Uh, Let's think about that on the one hand, speaking. So so preaching, teaching, encouraging, praying, right? Someone has faith, has the gift of faith, they're praying, speaking, that kind of thing. So gifts of speaking. And on the other, serving, showing mercy, giving, leading, Helping, even miracles, right? I would 
put miracles in here. So all all the giftings of the church fall in these two categories. And God has fully equipped the church for building itself up among itself. That includes Liberty Baptist Church. We do all of this, right? This doesn't mean that all of our giftings are going to make everything go smoothly. It doesn't mean child care is always going to go smoothly or hospitality or, or worship or preaching or teaching or Sunday school or praying. It doesn't mean it's all going to go smoothly. It does mean this, that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. God calls us out of the world puts to death our old selves and gives gives us life that we would suffer as exiles and belong to a new community so that we would give Him glory. Then He went, tried to make Himself a new identity. But at the end of the day, he was still Benny Went. Changed his name, moved to a different state, married a different person, whatever. He was still Benny Went. All of us are Benny Went. Because all of us try to cover ourselves up by trying to make an identity of our own. We try to cover up our mistakes by pretending they didn't happen. We try to cover our sins by acting like we're not, we're not that bad as sinners. Or at least we're not as, as bad as, as those sinners. We try to place our identity in, in making ourselves into people who just aren't that bad. We try to make ourselves into something we are not. We like to think, I would never do that, but the reality is we would and we do. We are in desperate need of an identity that we could never make on our own. An identity we could never conjure in our own. An identity we could never forge on our own. Not an identity, identity that hides our sins and failures, but an identity that eclipses them. An identity to become a whole new person. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. He took your identity as a great sinner. Your identity as a Pharisee, as a liar, as an offender, as a slanderer, as immoral. Christian, Jesus died, suffered and died with your old identity. And He has given you a completely new one. Not a facade, but a complete and whole righteousness. So you don't have to pretend. You don't have to pretend to be someone you're not. Yes, I am that bad of a sinner. In fact, I'm I'm far worse. I, I can't escape it. I can't escape my sin. I can't hide from it. I'm, I'm a traitor. I'm Judas Iscariot. And I trade my God out for 30 pieces of sin every day. 
I am irredeemable apart from perfect dying love. That Christ would still suffer and die to take away from me what is mine and give me what is His. It's perfect redeeming love. Yeah, He took your sin, Christian. Yes, that sin. That mistake. He took it on Himself. And has given you a new righteous identity. You are made alive. And you are called to a completely new kind of living. A living that involves suffering with a new community of fellow sinners who are redeemed. Just like you. And if you are not a Christian, you can do everything in your power to hide. You can do everything in your power to atone. You can be a good citizen, vote a certain way, live a certain way, go to church enough times, pray enough, but you will never be forgiven. Never. Forgiveness is only possible by faith and repentance in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is freely available to you today. Stop trying. Cease from trying. Cease from trying to run and hide. Stop being Benny Wint. Surrender yourself. And Jesus will give you a brand new identity where you don't have to hide or run anymore. Let's respond to Jesus and His Word today. Lord Jesus, our primary identity apart from You is sinner. It's in our fabric. It's in our DNA. And we try to wade into the ocean with our sin and and scrub it off. But no matter what, we can't scrub off the guilt. And no matter what, sin keeps coming back. For all of us in this room, sin creeps up and springs out at us and captures us. When we squeeze our way through the crack so that we can get to more sin. Lord, we don't need a a, a false identity. We need a, a new identity that only You can give us. And it's a new identity that You freely Offer us. It's free. It's of grace. All we have to do is reach out and take it. Freely justified. Without cost. Without shedding a tear. What we do is take it and say, Lord, I can't do what's required of me. I can't do anything possible to atone for my sin. Only You have done that. Only You can. Please take it. What is mine? And and Lord, give me what is yours. Lord, even for Christians, that is our cry. Because every day we try to live in our old identity. So Lord, clothe us anew with Your grace and our new identity in You. For we have been made alive to follow you into a new 
life and a new way of living. May we do all this to your glory and your dominion forever and ever. Amen.